Going Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Welcome back. Thank you. And Haley Knopf. Hey, hey. We're all back today. We are indeed. I loved last week's show, but I'm happy to be back in it because you guys last week got into some Supreme Court stuff with J.C. Rodriguez, and I get so giddy this time of year about the Supreme Court being back. It's one of my favorite things to cover. So this week on the show, I'm getting an assist from our man, Steve Trader. He's going to join us on mic to help me with an interview with Carter Phillips, who is a Supreme Court litigator, very well known in that area. He works at Sidley Austin. He's going through a whole bunch of the cases everybody should be watching this term. Winding back the clock here, a proper Supreme Court preview for Pro Se. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's really great to get, be back in that. But we do have a few other news things I know we want to get to today. So let's hit up those before we get into the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'll, I'll start us off here. There's been lots of news in recent weeks on the antitrust beat. The Google trial that we broke down a couple episodes ago is still humming along. We've been dipping in and out of that beat here and there, and we're back on it because there's another big one to talk about. As the Federal Trade Commission and 17 state attorney generals this week filed a long-awaited complaint against Amazon. And that complaint accuses the online retail giant of basically stifling competition by enacting a, a series of policies that basically punish merchants who sell their goods cheaper on other platforms that are not Amazon, and also force sellers to use Amazon's logistic services to access its platform. The complaint clocks in at a very bulky 172 pages, and it is... Um, Something of a culmination for current FTC chair, Lena Khan. She rose to prominence while she was still attending law school. She wrote a paper that really caught a lot of attention on the antitrust bar that basically decried Amazon as a trenchant monopolist for a variety of its business practices. She was a law student then. Now she's in the big chair at the FTC. And it looks like we are in for quite a long and bitter legal feud here. Yeah, it's not like Amazon has um, a shyness about fighting in court about things, and they're a big company with a lot of money to spend on their legal department, so this could be quite the adventure. I don't think it will surprise anybody to hear that some people believe Amazon's dominance has crossed into monopoly territory, but what exactly is being alleged here that, that they say crosses that line? Yeah, the complaint, and again, I must stress this, 172 pages uh, covers a lot of ground, so I will just give you the high points here. Definitely check out our coverage from Matt Perlman. He did an awesome job on a, on a pretty beefy story here. Basically, what you need to know is that the complaint accuses Amazon of maintaining monopolies for online superstores by cracking down on attempts by third-party sellers to list their goods for cheaper, for lower prices on other platforms. And to do this, the suit alleges that Amazon deploys a very sophisticated surveillance network to monitor when sellers on its platform are also selling on other platforms for lower prices. And then if it, if it detects that, it punishes those sellers by making their products harder to find on Amazon. The company used to have explicit contractual language that barred merchants from selling their items cheaper on other platforms. But then there was pressure over the years from EU regulators and also U.S. lawmakers that have forced them to be a little more subtle about it, as the complaint describes it. The complaint says that Amazon basically buries these non-compliant sellers deep 
in its search results, makes it harder to find, and also removes them from its uh, scrolling buy box, which is located at the top of the screen when you search for something on Amazon. And the suit also contends that Amazon uses its own retail business, not just hosting third-party merchants, um, which then competes against the sellers to deter them from offering more competitive prices. And that combination of policies often has the effect of forcing sellers to basically, you know, use the inflated base Amazon price as the floor for selling its goods even on other platforms, meaning that, again, according to the government, customers are feeling the effect of Amazon's policies even if they don't shop there. Now, the government is also targeting requirements that require sellers to use Amazon's order fulfillment service in order to be eligible for prime status. And that, you know, contends that the that designation of having prime status is basically critical for reaching, you know, the most Amazon shoppers. And so, again, this the, the, the allegation here is that that contention of basically saying you have to use our distribution products, our services for logistics basically raises prices and makes selling on non-Amazon platforms even more difficult. Now, this is neither here nor there, but I, whenever I see in a story that someone felt they needed to specify how many pages the complaint was, (laughs) I feel sympathy and also have, you know, flashbacks to all the times I open up a complaint and it's, uh, say, 172 pages. (laughs) Just to pick a number, yeah. Yeah, just to pick a (laughs) random number. It's not fun, folks. It's not fun. We've all been there, and I imagine that the court often feels this way, too, where there's all sorts of law clerks behind the scenes being like, oh, no, this one? (laughs) Exactly, but I digress. There are obviously, beyond this, I can think of similar headlines that we've already seen. What are some of the other competition-related proceedings against Amazon? Yeah, I wanted to situate us here. The The legal team at Amazon is busy and looks to stay busy in the coming years. Uh, in addition to this suit we're talking about this week from the FTC and these other states, the California Attorney General is already suing Amazon uh, over uh, many of these same pricing policies. Um, the D.C. Attorney General has also sued them. Um, that suit actually got tossed out, and the D.C. AG is looking to get that case back on its feet on appeal Consumers and retailers have also filed a litany of private antitrust suits against Amazon that remain pending. Uh, Also, I did want to mention here, this is not, strictly speaking, an antitrust case, but it is worth noting because it's another FTC action. The FTC in May cut a deal for Amazon to hand over $30 million to settle a variety of suits that claimed that they violated the privacy of children and other users uh, through the use of its Alexa voice command technology. The FTC is also suing uh, over Amazon's use of what it called dark patterns to basically trick customers into auto-renewing their Prime memberships. So we're kind of, we're dealing not only with with an antitrust suit now, but also some consumer watchdog stuff here, which is also obviously well within the FTC's purview. The new case that we're talking about is significant because it's kind of the most concerted effort yet because it is brought by both the FTC and the 17 state attorney generals. The suit, uh, I should say, just in terms of remedies, does call for injunctions on the use of these disputed pricing policies and also even holds the door open for the court to order uh, what it calls structural relief, which sort of is a legalese type of term, which could mean 
the sell-off of parts of Amazon's business. Now, we're far away from, from that, but that kind of is, is why this one is getting so much attention now. That is so interesting that structural relief is on the table here because that would be a big deal. But like you said, we're years away. I am interested, though, in how Amazon has initially reacted here. What have they had to say? Yeah, well, I will say that the host of litigation and cases and settlements that I just rattled off does not seem to have dampened Amazon's resolve. You might say they they have quite a lot of experience now responding to claims like this, but the company's general counsel, his name is David Zapolsky, just after Khan filed the lawsuit, sharply refuted most everything in the document. He said that the FTC suit is essentially backwards. He thinks that the policies that are being targeted here have actually spurred innovation and competition across the retail industry. Here was his quote. If the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for customers, and reduced options for small businesses, the opposite of what antitrust law is designed to do. The lawsuit filed by the FTC today is wrong on the facts and the law, and we look forward to making that case in court. Pretty basic stuff there, but not even an eyelash uh, batting at the at this very early stage. One other bit of procedural news, and Haley, I saw you actually wrote about this um, yesterday. Yes, I did. Just a day after the case was filed in Washington Federal Court, that's Washington State Federal Court, uh, obviously Amazon is headquartered in Seattle, the judge that it was assigned to actually recused himself. That judge is U.S. District Judge John Kunauer, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981, but took senior status in 2006. He still maintains a full caseload, um, but he and he didn't explain his reasons for recusing himself. So I don't really want to read too much into this. The case has landed instead with uh, District Judge John Chun, who was sworn in last year after being appointed to the bench by Joe Biden. So that's where we stand now. You know, we've got just a basic reaction from the company, and it's uh, with a new judge just within a day. Certainly won't be the last of this. We figure to be in this for years to come, but uh, quite a significant action by the FTC here. And uh, uh, we will keep you updated as needed on uh, on what's going on with this case. We absolutely will. I will note that uh, contrary to the 172 pages that comprise the complaint, the recusal order that I covered yesterday was a, a nice little uh, three-sentencer. Oh, uh, we love it. Not a lot to work with, but it does make me feel good when I open up a filing and it only <laughs> says one page at the top. That is that is ideal. Yeah. But so let's let's uh, shift gears here. There is much like Amazon, there is never a shortage of Trump news, and we have yet another big update to discuss today. We do try and be, you know, fairly picky about what Trump news we discuss on the show because there's simply too much of it. We but, could do, I mean, we could do a spinoff podcast at this point. I don't, really I don't think we could. will, but uh, this, is, this is pretty significant. So let's talk about it. Earlier this week, a New York state judge placed Donald Trump's assets in limbo, canceled all New York business certificates held by him and his sons, sanctioned his attorneys, and found that he and his real estate company defrauded banks and insurers for years by massively exaggerating his net worth by billions of dollars. This is a big win for New York Attorney General Letitia James, who's hoping to block Trump from doing business in the state altogether and trigger some pretty big fines. 
But, you know, as I mentioned, this is also just a drop in the bucket when it comes to the former president's legal woes. I don't mean to say this every single time we talk about (laughs) Trump, but there's so many cases. It's just always good, I think, to orient, hey, which one is this again? So can you give us just the top line? Which one is this again? Gladly. This is the civil case that was brought by James. She sued last year and is claiming that Trump misrepresented those assets so that he could fraudulently obtain financial benefits from banks and insurers. Aside from shutting down his ability to do business in New York, James is hoping to see the disgorgement of at least $250 million in allegedly ill-gotten gains. Honestly, this was this was one of the OG, uh, not the OG, he's been sued a bunch of times, but this I, I had forgotten about this civil case, kind of got... Uh, shoved off the front page with all these criminal indictments coming down. But this is uh, quite an interesting ruling. What exactly did the judge say this week about, I mean, you gave us the top line, but let's get into it a little bit more. Yeah, this was a summary judgment ruling. So state Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engoron entered partial summary judgment to James and also rejected Trump's argument that the case should just be totally thrown out. Here's a good quote from that order. The documents here clearly contain fraudulent valuations that defendants used in business, satisfying the Office of the Attorney General's burden to establish liability as a matter of law against defendants. Defendants respond that the documents do not say what they say, (laughs) that there is no such thing as objective value, and that essentially (laughs) the court should not believe its own eyes. Besides just having some some nice wording in that order, the judge did a few really noteworthy things here that I want to run through for you. As I mentioned up top, he sanctioned Trump's attorneys. And that is because uh, the judge said the lawyers were just constantly repeating arguments that had already been rejected and found to be frivolous. Judge Angeron said that reiterating those arguments was egregious and indefensible. At oral arguments, he actually even called some of the arguments, quote, literally crazy. <laughs> the attorneys have been fined $7,500 each. And I mean, then, you don't hear literally crazy that often in court. No, so no, notable, not really. for sure. Yeah. Another really big thing here is Judge Angeron basically ordered the Trump Organization LLC be dissolved because he immediately canceled all those New York business certificates held by Trump and his sons, and their longtime financial officers. And theoretically here, Trump could transfer his assets to other companies, but the judge said an independent receiver will have to oversee those moves. So it's not going to be, you know, super easy for him. Trump is not known to stay silent when things happen in court. So what's the response to all of this? Trump has maintained throughout this whole ordeal that New York is engaged in a political prosecution And James is completely biased among a few spicier words that I'm sure uh, I I encourage anyone who still has the stomach for (laughs) for the uh, lengthy social media rants to check that out if you want. They're they're a bit spicy, but he's vowed to appeal the decision, which one of his attorneys said was fundamentally flawed at every level. And Eric Trump responded similarly, calling the whole thing a coordinated effort between the judge and the attorney general to, quote, destroy a man's life, company, and accomplishments. So no surprises here. Yeah, that's pretty garden variety for how these things have gone. But let's let's try and keep it back to within the four walls of the courtroom. What, you know, like, like you say, this is a summary judgment ruling. It'll 
probably be appealed. But what is next on the, on the radar here uh, in terms of this uh, civil proceeding? It's important to note this was only a partial summary judgment ruling. So mm-hmm. a trial on the remaining claims for false business records, false financial statements, insurance fraud, and conspiracy could kick off as early as next week. Trump is, of course, trying to get that delayed. And an appellate court did agree to temporarily stay the beginning of the trial for now. But the appellate court is also likely to make a decision on whether or not that should be a permanent or more permanent, I should say, stay literally any day now. So it really could still kick off next week. And uh, Judge Angeron, for his part, has vowed that the bench trial will begin next week, quote, come hell or high water. And a final pretrial conference was held Wednesday. <laughs> we shall see. Sounds like he's cutting a wrestling promo there. Come hell or high <laughs> water, brother. There will be a bench trial. <laughs> False business records, financial statements. Be there. Exactly. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. Here's something that may sound familiar. A potential client comes along that you can't take on the work because you have a conflict, it's not in your practice area, or something from a different state. What should you do? Lawyers can't service one out of every three matters that come their way, but don't leave revenue on the table. Instead, check out Overture. It's a simple, ethical way to generate referral fees by handing those matters off to vetted attorneys. To learn more, check out overture.law today. For now, it's free to join. So head over to Overture.law. The start of a new Supreme Court term is just days away, with the justices returning to the bench on Monday to hear a couple of big ticket cases right out of the gate. And the term itself is shaping up to be an impactful one already with issues like gun rights and social media free speech cases on the docket as well. To gear up for the return of the high court season, we are speaking with a guest who is one of the most prominent Supreme Court litigators of our generation. It's Carter Phillips, a partner at Sidley Austin in the firm Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Welcome to the show, Carter. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it. So I think I speak for Amber and myself when I say this is one of our favorite times of the year, really, when the Supreme Court gets started. And I mean, you're, you're such a prominent litigator in front of the court. How do you feel when the court gets going again. Is this just another day at the office for you or do you, do you get excited about it as well? No, I'm always, I always look forward to it. I mean, we're, we're waiting this week, obviously for the long conference list to come out. Uh, my guess is that'll, that'll come out before the first Monday in October. We'll get it either later today or sometime tomorrow. And, and, and there's always a certain amount of excitement that comes from just seeing what the court's one, what's the level of activity of the court, you know, is that going to pick up any from what it's been the last few years. And then second, what are the big issues that the court has decided to weigh in on? I definitely agree with Steve that I have a real back to school feeling this time of year uh, when the Supreme Court comes comes back with uh, really a fury most years lately. There's lots of things in the docket. I know this term may not be as flashy as what we saw last year, but I think there's some really interesting issues that I want to get your take on. One of the first ones I wanted to talk about is one of the first oral arguments we're going to have this term. 
And that is one with huge stakes for the much beleaguered Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This uh, comes out of the Fifth Circuit, which issued a sweeping ruling last year that the entire funding structure of the CFPB was unconstitutional. Obviously, attacks on this independent structure of the CFPB are nothing new, but it has raised all sorts of questions about the ability to regulate the financial marketplace. So I'm curious about what you think the court may do in this case. How broadly do you see the justices ruling here potentially? And could this, in fact, be what some people are suggesting as the death knell for the agency? Yeah, I guess that's that's the part I have the hardest time envisioning the court doing is just to completely stripe down the CFPB and its and its ability to operate. Candidly, uh, the, the Fifth Circuit's analysis is is probably too clever by half in the sense that, you know, the suggestion that, that because this is a, a, a non-budget item that is not directly controlled by another budget item, that, that that makes it too far removed for it to be part of Congress's appropriations. This strikes me as um, interesting, but not at least to me, not ultimately persuasive because Congress still has the ultimate authority what to do with respect to the Bureau. And if it it wants to significantly cut back on it, it can. Um, It would would probably have to pass some kind of a filibuster in the Senate to get that accomplished these days. But, But even within its own framework, where it has a fair amount of freedom to decide on its on its own budget the, you know the overall framework for treasury is still pretty limited and therefore it's not as though we're talking about essentially a blank check to the bureau to continue to do what it's doing so i i just have this nagging feeling that this is going to end up being one of those cases where you say wow if the court were to go down that road that's a huge decision and then it doesn't go down that road and therefore it becomes essentially largely a dust left of the dustbin of history. Yeah, we often see that where the potential is enormous, but narrow rulings sometimes win the day. So I think proponents of that agency might be really buoyed to hear that that's the thing you think may happen here. Well, <laughs> they shouldn't be listening to me to figure out what's going to happen with it. <laughs> but we'll see how the argument goes and how seriously the court takes the argument. Yeah, that's how a lot of these cases go. It's it really comes down to the oral arguments and the questions that they ask. Um, I want to jump to probably as we stand right now, kind of the blockbuster case of the term. There's no date yet set for oral arguments, but this is a question about whether people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders have the right to own a gun. And, you know, given the court's decision in Bruin a year ago. What could we really expect from the justice this time around related to the Second Amendment? Well, you know, the United States position is basically that if you're if you're you know under a under a court order under these circumstances, you you, you essentially have no Second Amendment right. Um, that's a pretty radical position in the sense of of it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of take into account the individual situation and you know how how serious the charges are, whether there's, you know, whether there's a real risk of violence. So I, 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 I can understand why there's some anxiety on that side in terms of Second Amendment rights. You know, where does that end? If you get an order of any sort about, you know, about activities, does that deprive you of your Second Amendment rights and under what circumstances? You know, dealing with issues categorically is always a little tricky and the courts, generally speaking, been kind of resistant to that 
kind of an approach, at least in dealing with constitutional rights. On the other hand, obviously, it's difficult to find a more uh, concerning situation than one of domestic abuse and you know, putting a gun in the hand of a person who's already been seriously found to have been engaged in some form of domestic abuse isn't something you'd want to do lightly. Um, so I, I have some, I have, you know, my gut tells me that they'll, they'll search for some kind of middle ground in the sense of, of some form of individualized inquiry, not that you're categorically barred simply because there's an order that's going to require something more than that, but that with a thumb, I would guess on the scale of, of keeping guns out of the hands of people who are, who are legitimately concerned and considered to be potentially violent. Do you think there's a chance they will go to the well of history again? Because that featured so prominently in the Bruin decision, looking at the historical tradition of how guns and weaponry has been treated in America. So are there any odds here that they may find some precedent in the deep recesses of our history? Yeah, well, the court certainly has expressed its strong preference for going down that path. It's, I mean, it's a little difficult or tricky, at least from my perspective, if, if you think of it in the context of domestic abuse because if you I mean if you go back to pre-revolutionary England uh, it's not like women had rights and so I would be shocked if there's much in the way of history that's going to protect women under these circumstances on the other hand I, I find it hard to believe the court would base its ultimate decision strictly on what might have been permissible conduct in the 15th century I would find that Surprising as well, but they do love the history. So I, I hope we have a maybe a more modern approach to this question, since it does seem to be quite the modern issue we're discussing in this one. The, look, the reality is that the, the, the court's going to have to figure out how, how useful history is going to be in all of the various permutations of Second Amendment issues. Obviously, I mean, a, a sort of comparable issue that's been floating around the lower courts and Undoubtedly, it'll be in the Supreme Court. Is you know, if somebody's been convicted of a felony, are they automatically barred from being allowed to have a gun? And what other restrictions can you place on the on their gun rights? And again, if you go back in history, at least you know, pre-revolutionary war period of time, I mean, felony was typically punished by by death. So my guess is, at least of that person's concerns of Second Amendment rights, those people. Didn't those people were dead. Right. So again, I, I, you know, history is only going to take you so far, and then at some point you're going to have to figure out what are we going to do with these rights in light of what are now you know, fundamental changes in how our society operates. Let me pivot us to something that is perhaps a little, um, a little snoozier when you compare it to gun rights. But my nerd self comes alive talking about administrative law. <laughs> so the case I want to talk about is SEC versus Jaharski. That's the one that could potentially spell the end to administrative courts. Right. I know that for some people, they'll be like, all right, Amber, what, what are we getting into here? But administrative courts are really important. So I'm interested about what you think about this case, what it says about the so-called administrative state and, and where the justices may view that. So, so the court has been for some time a, a little bit suspicious of these kinds of tribunals uh, because they are they are insular right um, but they have an enormous amount of power and they can put um, a regulated person or entity through an enormous amount of pain and suffering before a decision comes out of it on the other hand the court has 
essentially blessed administrative courts now for the better part of 60 years, recognizing that at the end of the day, no matter what happens in the administrative court process or the administrative proceeding itself, it's ultimately the decision of the agency that counts, and that decision is reviewable um, by the judiciary, and therefore it's not a problem, at least as a due process issue. So, I mean, precedent pretty clearly is in favor of these courts, uh, notwithstanding the Fifth Circuit's opinion, striking them down. I mean, this is a big term for evaluating the administrative state. The court's got two or three cases in there. The, this SEC case actually has three different questions presented. You know, and so, you know, one of the issues is, you know, when does when can the commission submit a case to the administrative court as opposed to take it to a take it to the judiciary in the first instance, and how clearly has that got to be? And then there's the whole question of the appointments clause, which the court's been dealing with in a variety of contexts, as far as the appointment of the administrative law judges, and, and the court's been striking down most of the actions to try to circumvent the the uh, appointments clause. Uh, but in the end, every one of those cases has led to no substantive benefit to the party who challenged them. So if all that comes out of what uh, out of the SEC's process, and which I, I think is what's going to happen, is that the court says, no, administrative courts are still valid. question of whether to take something to administrative court or a court has long been known to be left to the prosecutorial discretion of the agency. But these administrative law judges are, are, are not appointed consistent with the Constitution. But the commission can retroactively fix that, then I, you know, we will end up with a decision that once again sort of takes a shot at the administrative state, deals at a not serious blow, uh, and provides absolutely no, no relief to the party who's upset by the SEC's action in this particular context. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting outcome. I mean, we've certainly seen cases arise before questioning the the validity of patent judges, for example, um, and that's a similar issue there. But for the listeners who may not know a ton about how these administrative courts work, I mean, if they did go a very radical route here and say that these administrative proceedings are are not passing muster, that would affect all sorts of things. I mean, securities is what this suit is about, but it would affect employment law. It would affect many things out there. So it would be a massive sea change. So I guess that's why you're saying that's pretty unlikely the outcome. Well, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> unlike the appointments clause problems, which you can sort of ratify your way around within the agency, not clear to me that you could do that. If you say basically none of this litigation should have taken place in the first instance, it all should have arisen in in, in federal court, and and the failure to do that. I mean, I don't know how you you can't undo that problem. The only way to get back to where you were is to actually bring the case in federal court and litigate it there. So, it, it, yes, it would be a startlingly large decision. But um, ultimately, I would be I would really be shocked if the court did anything nearly that radical. Well, as long as we're on the topic of the administrative state, um, there is a big case on, on the docket this year that's going to look at uh, Chevron deference. And uh, this is a case about uh, fishermen in Maine, but ultimately, you know, could strike at the heart of a 40-year-old precedent. Um, how do you see that case playing out? So I was surprised that the court took the case, if only because it's been significantly narrowing the Chevron deference doctrine by its reliance on major questions as a 
exception to Chevron. So Chevron says if an agency acts by rulemaking, the question is, you know, did speak did Congress speak to that issue? If it didn't, then okay, you go to step two. Step two is is the is the agency's action a reasonable one given the statute and everything it can interpret within the statute. And you know, that's been the rule since I think 1983. Justice Stevens wrote the opinion. I actually moved I did a moot court for the, the lawyer who argued that case for the Justice Department. So it's, just, it's a case that's a little near and dear to my heart, although I, I will be honest with you, when I was doing the moot court, I never envisioned that that case would, would have any significance beyond its own resolution of the particular EPA dispute that was going on. I never envisioned a Chevron doctrine of any sort. But in any event, so the, but that's been regulating and giving a, a tremendous advantage to federal agencies in litigation by basically saying that if if their interpretation of this of the statute is a, is merely reasonable and in some instances almost rational, then they get the benefit of the doubt and their rulings uh, stand. And the court has for some time individual justices have been saying, you know, wait, I'm not sure. First of all, that's not what the Administrative Procedure Act says. It talks about acting contrary to law, which would suggest that somebody somebody should be. Somebody, meaning courts, should be citing the law in the first instance without deference, and that maybe we ought to rethink the entirety of, of the Chevron doctrine. But but as part of that process, then they came up with this major questions exception to Chevron, where it said, well, this is just too big an issue to believe that Congress really meant to leave it to the agency to resolve um, the details, uh, and particularly when the details are going to have tremendous impact on the economy. And so that that had narrowed, at least in my mind, had narrowed pretty significantly the importance of Chevron. And when the court had the opportunity to overrule what I thought was a, a, a frankly much more pernicious administrative problem, which was what is called our, A-U-E-R, our deference, which is that you used to, you used to give deference to the agency's interpretation of its own regulations if they were ambiguous. Well, if anything, you would think an agency ought to be able to make its regs unambiguous before it's allowed to interpret them. But it you know, seems particularly risky to say, okay, you have an ambiguous statute, and then the agency adopts the statute verbatim. And then can just say, decide whatever it wants and it's and, and it's and that interpretation whether it comes from a brief by the agency or in some piece of guidance from the agency, that that's entitled to the force of law. I, I thought that would be an easy one for the court to overrule, but it, it and it took the issue to overrule it and then didn't. Uh, it, it certainly cut it back significantly, but it did not overrule it completely. So I, I thought they were sort of, the, the court had kind of lost its appetite for, for kind of revisiting these things. So when they granted this case, which is, Clearly not a major question, you know, the, the, the issue of whether or not, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that uh, the federal government can have inspectors on these ships where fishing is taking place in order to ensure that the fishing complies with federal law. But the um, question of who pays for the inspectors is, a, is, a, is the significant issue that uh, the agency has said, no, the, the fisherman has to pay for the inspector, and I can understand why they're not too thrilled. <laughs> they're not thrilled to take up the space with the inspector to begin with, and it adds insult to injury to say, "And now you have to pay for him to be there." Um, but you know that 
I, nobody's going to see that as a major question other than the fisherman himself. Um, so, you know, it, it cleanly poses the question of, you know, when you're dealing with an area of, you know, with essentially legal issue, is there room anymore for deference to the agency or, or should these things be litigated on a, on a level playing field? I have to tell you, having litigated for 40 years against the federal government where, uh, you know, I've had Chevron and, and deference thrown in my face, it, the, the idea of at least a few years of private practice not having to face that uphill climb is actually kind of an attractive opportunity. But so we'll see. I, I wouldn't. I don't think anybody would be surprised if if Chevron were overruled. I think what what will be more interesting is sort of them. Where does that take you? I mean, does that mean you're never deferring to agencies? That can't be the right rule either, because there are a lot of things that agencies decide that courts have not. They know nothing about and candidly have less desire to find out about. So. It'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out. But clearly, the, the court's been angling for a shot at, at Chevron, and, and this, is the, this, is, this is as clean as it's going to be in that area. So there's a couple other cases that we just wanted to tick through one quick. It's actually a pair of consolidated cases that relate to public officials blocking constituents from their social media pages. The Ninth Circuit had found two school district board members violated the First Amendment by blocking parents. And the Sixth Circuit said a city official was fine to block a constituent because the official's Facebook page was personal. Uh, that's a circuit split. We love those. And that's usually where the Supreme Court steps in. And it all just brings up this really interesting question of, you know, what constitutes a public forum when you're a public official? We saw this issue crop up uh, a bunch during the Trump administration. And, and that was looked like it was on its way to the Supreme Court. It never got there, though. Um, what do you think the justice might be aiming for in taking up this case? My guess is that they took it just to resolve the conflict. To be honest, I don't, I don't know that they were. I mean, I, they've obviously they've obviously got an interest in social media cases and how to regulate social media. I'm not sure how much they're concerned about it necessarily in the context of public officials. Although there's reason, obviously, as as social media becomes a more dominant form of communication to at least be concerned about the question. Um, I, and my gut keeps telling me that, look, if, if you're a public official and you're using social media in any way to promote sort of the, the public's good, even if, even if it's not with the permission of the government, I think you're probably at serious risk of, uh, of acting in ways that the First Amendment um, would prevent you from doing so. I mean, if you if you like if you want to separate your life, you know, have a social media for your government activity, and that's one thing, and then have a social media for your private activity, that's something else, and then and segregate them. I mean, I, I wouldn't. It doesn't seem to me an unreasonable position for the for the court to take. Look, we, you know, once you make the choice to go down the path of of putting publicly important information on there and and thereby voluntarily creating a forum. Um, you have to live with the consequences of that. Carter, we have put you through some paces here, making you talk about a wide array of cases, guns, the administrative state, now social media. But I'm curious if there's anything else you're in particular watching this term that's already on their docket. Yeah, no, there are no other cases that are really on the docket. I mean, I, I you know, my overall Hey, guess this is another year where until we find out something this week that, that says different, it's still a very small docket. 
Um, you have to remember, I, I, I grew up at a time when the when the court was hearing 160 cases a term. Sure. Now deciding only last term, I only decided 59 cases. But but I'm also you know, from a time when you know you could count on the court to have at least the A class action case, some securities cases, some antitrust cases. Some of what I would call the nuts and bolts business cases, you know, even even a big environmental case or maybe a an ERISA case, something like that. It's interesting to me that there there, there are really no cases that kind of and not no case, but there are very few cases that really involve the core of what I think of as the business agenda so far this term. So we'll see. I've got I'm, I'm hoping for bigger and more interesting cases that'll come out in the in the big in the big conference list that we'll see later this week or soon or in the first couple of weeks after the after the first uh, first Monday in October. We root for that too, us legal journalists. We are, we always want the big cases also. It's uh, it gives us lots to talk about and dissect. Well we just want to get you out of here with with one last question and it's about Supreme Court ethics, which is been such a huge issue in the past couple of terms. It really feel like, it feels like it dominated so many headlines last term. Yeah, we're not going to give you an easy last question. We're going to make sure it's one that's big to tackle. Well, I, and I'm just curious if you see, I mean, the temperature has been so high on this issue. Do you see that turning down a little bit this term? Um, you know, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in particular have been kind of signaled out here, but um They've disclosed their finances now. Is this something that is going to start to kind of take more of a background? Or, I mean, is this still going to be such a hot button issue again this term? I mean, it'll depend on the press to some extent if the, if the media keeps digging and finding other examples of, of uh, gifts or other relationships that, that they want to they highlight, then, then this problem will continue. Like, my view of the world is. It seems like low-hanging fruit to me for the court to adopt a code of ethics that, that applies to it and, and to figure out a reasonable way of enforcing it without it just being the individ each individual justice's decision. I would bet any amount of money that there is a current draft code of ethics sitting either on his desk or in his top drawer at the chief justice's chambers, and that... Um, the time will come. I think Justice Kavanaugh said recently he, he can envision it. Others have said the same. I just think the court, I think the way that this gets diffused significantly is if the court simply takes that, does that, approves a code of ethics. There'll obviously be a flurry of consideration. You know, is it strict enough? Is it not strict enough? But that'll take away a lot of the uh, oomph to, to, because that's, because all of the press accounts, when they turn into a political issue, they turn into, and the court doesn't have a code of ethics. So I think if you put that on the table, then a lot of the digging probably comes to an end and waiting to see how the code of ethics plays out. At a minimum, I, in, that, in that scenario, I would guess the court will buy itself probably two or three years of peace on those questions, unless there's a, a more serious ethical breach that pops up somewhere in the interim. But well, until that happens, which I agree could be a, a likely scenario here that we get to the point where that just gets put on the table. But right now we're in this gray period where that doesn't exist. And there's been a lot of calls for various justices we've talked about to recuse from certain suits because of some of these alleged connections that are said to be improper. 
Do you see anything happening with that, with the actual cases before, you know, not just the big, broad talk about ethics, but the, the actual cases on the docket this year? I, I mean, I look, the, the justices have always had the opportunity, you know, have the ability to decide when they think they should recuse. And I can, and I think Danilito just recently uh, explained why he wasn't going to recuse in a particular case. I mean, they, they, he did, they, yeah. So, I mean, look, they, they, they read the newspapers, they, they hear the public uh, reaction to it. Um, I think candidly, the court re- responded to a lot of the criticism about the shadow docket from a couple of terms ago, when it when it granted a lot of those cases on and then briefed them on an expedited basis, and so they decided them off the shadow docket, which is which I, I don't think they would have done, but for the for those comments, I don't I don't know that uh, Justice Alito would have said anything publicly about why he was or was not recusing, but for the fact that those issues have been swirling around, so they're they're sensitive to them. Um, you know, the parties are always going to, well, you, you, you really, at least if you're a litigator, want to really suggest that a, that a justice should recuse unless you're in, in, a, in a core area. Well, you know, look, if justices, if justices don't stock in a company, the company's being, is litigating, you know, if for some reason that got missed, you'd want to point that out to a justice. And, my, and, and I have no doubt that they would immediately recuse themselves as a consequence of that, or at least they would do what Justice Breyer did a few years ago when he found out after he'd actually sat through the oral argument that his wife owned stock in one of the companies involved, and then and then she immediately sold it, and so he stayed in the case. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious and pretty clear to me that if he'd known about it, he would have recused himself at the outset, but he didn't, and, and he'd already invested a fair amount of time and effort into it. So I, you know, I, I have a hard time getting terribly excited about these things i think for you know all, all of them except i guess kagan were at one time or another judges and which means they've lived under a code of ethics and they've done it successfully i don't see it's that it's going to be that hard and i don't and i don't you know individual shots can be taken but i don't i don't see that as i don't see business as usual changing in dealing with the individual cases i think they'll they'll either recuse or not based on the on what motivates them to to be concerned about whether whether they appear to be impartial. Carter, uh, we have covered a lot of ground today, and we just really appreciate you joining us, sharing your insight and all your experience with the with the court. Uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, and uh, let's let's have a fun opening day. Absolutely, we're here for it. <laughs> all right, thank you. Guys, it's really been a doozy of a show. There's so much to talk about in these pre-Supreme Court weeks. Thank you so much for being with me today, Alex. Thank you, Amber. And Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Carter Phillips, and our contributing reporters, Matthew Perlman and Frank Runyon. And also a big shout out to the whole Law360 newsroom. Many people in our newsroom cover Supreme Court cases. We've pulled bits and pieces from a lot of their coverage for all the things we talked about in our main segment today. So thanks, everybody. I also want to thank the music providers for our show. That's Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. Five stars really helps people find us. And if you want to read more, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.